What a joy to be with you today in so many ways. If you're worshiping with us anywhere in the world through our online campus, welcome today. We are glad that you're with us today and excited to share this special day with you. If you're worshiping at our West Murfreesboro location, then we're excited to have you as well. And I have seen the large equipment out there on our Burnt Knob property, and it's exciting to see that get started. And I'm looking forward to the building that's going to be there for a worship center sometime next year. For you here at the East Murfreesboro campus, I'm thrilled to be in this location and to be able to worship with you in person. It's a special privilege for me today, especially today, as we get to rejoice together celebrating Mother's Day. Now, you might have joined us today just because you wanted to be with your mom. You're going to go visit mom afterwards or celebrate with her, and that's great if you're doing that. Uh, if you are not with your mom because of some physical separation or because of death, because of some emotional separation, then I want to ask you if you would look for someone who has served as a mother figure in your life and has inspired you as a mother would, and thank that person, inspire and encourage that person today. It would be a very special gift to broaden our perspective of what Mother's Day means in that way. My friend, Clydeen, He's a good friend of my family, lives in the Atlanta area. And for years, when Nancy and I would sit on Sunday mornings worshiping, to our left, Clydeen and her husband would sit. To our right would be her children and her grandchildren. But four or five rows in front of Nancy and me would be Clydeen's mother, who was named Naomi. Naomi was a sweet, gentle, kind lady she was 90 when I knew her, so she wanted to sit up there a little bit closer to the front to sit with her friends that were more her age. Well, she served in my life as an example of a mother figure because of her deep spiritual commitment. And it was beautiful to see her worshiping every Sunday with her family, with her kids. Not everyone gets that opportunity. My mother had already been deceased for a while when I came to know Naomi. And it was special to have someone like her to serve in that role. Today, I'm remembering my mother. Actually, I'm wearing the tie that my mother gave me. My mom knew that I liked optical illusions, so she gave me this optical illusion tie. And uh, periodically, I'll use it still and enjoy remembering her. You may not get to see me afterwards to find uh, what it's like, but if you do, uh, feel free to take a look at it and see if you can decipher the meaning of the tie. A couple of weeks ago, my family was uh, hit with COVID. My wife and I have recovered well. I'm past my my uh, quarantine state, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. But uh, we thank you. If you're a part of our small groups who prayed for us, or our life groups, our discipleship groups, we had prayer groups praying for us, and we appreciate that. My wife, who had health concerns and is immunocompromised, we were all concerned about her, but she bounced back more quickly and more completely than me, and we're thankful, very thankful for that. It's a great blessing. Clydeen and her mother remind me, this is a picture of her mother Naomi, remind me of what a blessing it is to be able to worship with your mother. Not everybody gets that chance. Some people don't even get the chance to experience what it's like to have a godly mother influence in your life. Now if you want to have a picture made with your mother or someone who's been a mother figure to you, 
Clydeen showed us how to do it in this next picture. That's Clydeen kissing her mom. And a favorite photo of the family, you might take that in, into mind if you want to take a photo this afternoon with your mom as well. Women, today, whether you have children or have never had children, whether your children are here or not here, or whether your children are alive or not alive even, I want to ask that you would pray that God show you opportunities to be a mother figure in the lives of other people, to inspire and encourage them spiritually because we need that so desperately in our world today. And I believe you would be blessed by doing that. Today we're going to be studying from the book of Philippians. We're continuing a beautiful series about rejoicing that's taken directly from the book of Philippians. Today we're in chapter 3, and if you want to open your Bible to that part of the Scriptures and read along with us, I would love for you to do that. I'm going to be reading today in the New Living Translation. Every year I read through the whole Bible, and each year I use a different version. And I've come to like this particular one for a lot of different reasons. But you read it in whatever version you're reading, because uh, they all say the same thing. And the key message is unmistakable in any version. Read with me the first words of chapter 3 of Philippians. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. The Apostle Paul was interested in building up the faith of people, and he knew that it was possible to rejoice in any circumstances whatsoever. Paul was facing difficult situations himself, his friends were facing difficulties as well. And he still says to rejoice. For you, when life crashes in on you for any reason, maybe your freedom is limited as it was for Paul who was writing from prison. Maybe your health has declined or is failing as it did for Paul's companions who were with him. Maybe there are difficulties of having to move or relocate yourself and you didn't really want to. Maybe there are relationship problems in your life. Maybe you've had difficulty getting along with your own children. Whatever the circumstances, Paul still says here, it's time to rejoice and you have the ability to rejoice. Before going any further with this, I want you to clarify very well in your mind the difference in what it means to be happy and to rejoice. Because Paul didn't say, now I want you all to be happy, to re-happy, re-sign up for happiness. No, he said, I want you to be joyful, to rejoice. And there is a great distinction between the two. First of all, happiness is a sign of temporary contentment that usually comes because of outward circumstances. Let me clarify it for you in this little chart. Happiness is temporary contentment it comes from outward circumstances. On the other hand, joy is a lasting peace, often accompanied with gratitude or thanksgiving even, and a peace that comes because of your inward circumstances. Do you catch the difference? If you're dependent on outward circumstances for your happiness, you're not going to be happy all the time because your outward circumstances are always changing. Sometimes you feel better, sometimes you feel worse. And when you're feeling worse, you say, where is God? Why am I not happy? That's not a good way to live. No wonder many of us are living on an emotional and spiritual roller coaster up and down because we're dependent and seeking for happiness. But the Apostle Paul brings our attention back to joy 
a lasting peace that comes from inward circumstances. Think about it this way. Happiness will change depending on what happens to you. But if you're looking at joy, that will be consistent regardless of what happens to you. Regardless of the outward circumstances. That's why Paul could write from prison and with difficulties all around him and say, Rejoice! Because he was an example of a person filled with internal joy that could not be taken away. Now the rest of chapter 3 helps you with this. Because God knows you need more joy than you need happiness. And it's important because Paul does not give any kind of a recipe to take away the pain. He doesn't give any kind of a recipe to get rid of the disappointment in life or to change your circumstances. But he does give a clear pathway to be filled with joy regardless of what your circumstances are. To help you understand this, I'm going to show you the two natural parts that chapter 3 of Philippians unfolds into. And I'm going to help you see how I remember those first. And then we're going to talk about how to do them, how to put them into practice. Now, the first one is this, and it's to take out your trash. Now, to be a good example for you, I'm taking out my trash from my home office today. And I just brought it with me on the way to the dumpster while I'm doing that. So I'm going to take out the trash, and I want you to do the same thing. You've heard a lot about trash talk. Paul, the apostle here in this chapter, gives our attention to trash thought, trash thinking. A lot, no, I shouldn't say a lot. Most, if not all people, have some trash thinking in their hearts about spiritual values and spiritual contentment. That's because human religions all around the world, all different kinds, focus an inordinate amount of attention on what you do in order to become perfect or what you do in order to become acceptable to God. The rules and regulations that you need to keep in order for you to qualify to be accepted by God. Today's passage warns us that that's not just something far away in a different land. It's not some other religion. But good church people can do exactly the same thing to you. Listen to Paul's next words in verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, he uses a strong terminology here, and he's talking about religious people. He's talking about religious leaders. He's not talking about Satan or demons or something like that. And he calls them dogs. Now, I know this sounds different to you than it does to the people, or it would have to the people that Paul first wrote it to. See, I have... Uh, I have an image in my mind of my good friend, Dean Hagler, a great spiritual mentor to me. But even more, he blessed my family because he was the foster dad for one of my adopted children. And Dean had a plaque in his house, and it said, I work hard so that someday I can live the kind of life that my dog has. A lot of you are that way too, aren't you? I understand that. Dogs in the day when Paul wrote this did not have the soft, easy, cushy life that a lot of urban American dogs have now. It was a horrible insult for a person, highlighting the fact that the people were vicious and that they were cruel and that they were destructive. 
Paul said that because these people, religious people, church people, were trying to get everyone to keep rules and regulations as they understood them, not necessarily as God gave them. And they were following up on everyone to be sure everyone was observing them perfectly. And it was a horrible, destructive way to live. The truth comes in verse 3, the next words that are up here already. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We're not relying on the rules and the regulations as other people interpret them and force them on us, but we're relying simply on what Jesus Christ has done for us. So there's the way for you to take the trash out, and this is it. Focus on what Christ did, not what you have done. Focused on what Christ did, not what you have done. You see, human effort in terms of getting yourself saved and clearing away the guilt from your past, human effort is never, ever enough. If we could be saved by religious activity, no one would have been in a better position than the Apostle Paul who wrote Philippians 3 to begin with. In these very verses, you can read them on your own, Paul gives a spiritual resume of all of the things that qualify him before God. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, and he goes on listing a lot of different things that he had done. Now, I know a lot of you have a spiritual resume like that as well. On yours, it may say something like, well, I helped with a special service project once. I gave at the office charity fund to show what a good person I am. I went to Sunday school. I signed up for a local ministry. Maybe I went to a religious school. Maybe I got a degree from a, a Christian university. I gave a percentage of my income to God on a regular basis. And the one, of course, that everyone, even non-church people like to say, is that I avoided all of the horrible, grievous sins. They'll say it something like this, I'm basically a good person. It's their resume. It's the things that they say would be why God should let them into heaven. If you ever want to know what's on somebody's resume, just ask that. Say, why do you think when you get to heaven, God should let you in? And, and pay attention. If the next word begins with I, you know it's the wrong answer. Because the next word should begin with Jesus. We depend on what Jesus has done, not what I have done. Well, Paul said that he could make his resume better than anyone's. That his could look more spectacular than any other person. And I probably could do the same thing. I could add all the things you do, and then I could say, well, I also lived overseas as a missionary for a certain number of years. I've also started a certain number of churches in the United States, this and that. I might put down that I bought Girl Scout cookies earlier in the spring to encourage kids. Yum, that was really good. Yeah, you, you get the point. You could keep on and on and on and on adding things about how good you are, but just stop it. Just stop, because it's totally worthless. I can say the same thing that Paul said in the next verse, verse 7. I once thought about these things, that they were valuable, but now I consider them to be worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. No longer do I count on my own righteousness. Now, Paul's pretty emphatic there, isn't he? All of that spiritual resume stuff, all the things and reasons that you're good, all of it is completely, absolutely worthless. 
You see, Paul's language is some that uh, some people really struggle with because it's so strong. In this particular version, he politely says, I counted it as garbage. And I picture this when I think of garbage. But older translations will translate this as dung. He thought of it as dung. Now, in a modern context, I think that he was already talking about how the people were dogs. Who knows? He could have been thinking about dog poop. I'm an urban dog owner, and I carry dog poop bags in my pockets. I have them in my coats. I have them in both of my cars. Some of you people are that way too, aren't you? Paul is saying, whatever Glenn could get after he walks his dog by trying to sell this, that's how much your spiritual resume is worth. Nothing. You could write out your resume, fold it up, and put it in one of these dog bags, and it still would be worth nothing. Absolutely nothing. But there is one credential that's worth absolutely everything. And that, according to Paul, is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is everything that counts, and all of the rest is completely garbage. Now, I don't know if some of you have done this, but I was a, a business owner and responsible for human resources, and I used to receive stacks of resumes, especially because our business was thriving during the recession period of 2008, 9, and 10. And so people would come by every day bringing me resumes. I don't know if you're like me, if you've been in that kind of role, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only person. This is actually one of the resumes I received back in those days. I feel like I'm the only person that reads resumes upside down because most resumes that I received then had way too much information on them first, and most of them did not have any references. But when they did, like this one does, this one has three references on it, that usually is at the bottom, but it was the first thing that I was interested in. Because if the person had references and was connected to someone associated or affiliated with our company, then that resume went to the top. What I was most interested in was the re were the references, not all of the qualifications, because most of what we wanted people to do, we could teach them to do it if they were of a mind to learn and to serve and to work hard. Well, spiritually, your resumes are thought that way too. You see, I believe your resume spiritually probably has a lot more information on it than it should have because you're so worried about the things that you do in order to get to heaven. But really what matters most is only one thing. Who do you know? Who is your reference? Do you know Jesus Christ? Because that's all that counts. Everything else spiritually is trash thinking and you need to throw it out with the trash. Just get rid of it. You do this by focusing on what Christ has done, not what you do. And that's the beauty, and that's the power of the gospel message. It really is good news. If you're pursuing Christ and you're following Him, then you know Him. Then you have worth because of Him, not because of you. Then you have hope because of Him, not because of you. That has got to be the foundation for anything we discuss in terms of joyful living. And Paul knew it, which is why he wanted to get rid of that part first. But then he moves on to maybe a deeper and more pointed part of the message. And I'm going to summarize it this way. Pack your bag. So to illustrate this, I brought the bag that I carried with me to Africa on a vision trip a few weeks ago. It served very well. And before I went on the trip... 
I also packed that bag. When I was packing the bag, I wasn't thinking so much about, oh yeah, I need to clean out the garage at home. No, I was thinking about where I was going. I wasn't thinking so much about, oh, the closet at home, I meant to clean that out too. Oh, I wanted to paint that. No, I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff because I was packing my bag with my attention focused on the destination and where I was going. Listen to how Paul describes this. Verse 10 of Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Now, most of us like to stop right there, but Paul continues on. Look at this. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul said there, he, there were four things he wanted, to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection. And then he goes on to say, I want to know also how to suffer with him. I want to know how to die with him or to die in him. Now, I'm not telling you in the middle of this that you absolutely will have to die for Christ. But if that does become necessary, it does not in any sense of the word take away your joy, which is based on your internal circumstances. On the contrary, it becomes even more reason to rejoice because the joy does not change with circumstances even if they are horrible. Now, why did Paul say he wanted to do these things, even to die with Christ? Because he was so singularly focused on his destination. Here's what I want you to do in order to pack your bag spiritually. Focus on your destination. Do not focus on your difficulties. Focus on your destination, not on your difficulties. Now, I know difficulties matter. Life can be hard. Disappointments are devastating. But it does not have to be your primary focus in life. The fact is, knowing Christ will often involve struggle or suffering or hardships of some, part, some way or another. It can also mean sharing in the death of Christ. Even if you don't die for Christ, we all want to die in Christ. Because when we die in Christ, faithful to Him, that is often the greatest testimony of our entire life for future generations. So today, I want you to know Christ. As simple as that. I want you to experience His power. Now you might think, what does it mean to know Christ? There are a lot of different ways to talk about that. There's a lot of different ways to summarize that. Some ways use the word trusting. If you'll trust Jesus, we use the same uh, other words to describe trusting as in believing in Him and putting your faith in Him. If you trust Christ and then are following Him, sometimes expressed through repentance by turning away from sin and following Jesus directly, or by your baptism, showing that I am willing to put on Christ and to, and to be identified with Him. And then to commit yourself to growing in Him. Then you do know Christ. That's what it means to know Christ. It's not complicated. It's not out of reach. It's not something far away. Now, does that mean perfection? Does that mean you've got to be absolutely perfect in everything that you do and all of the rules that you keep? The resume-loving spiritual leaders, that's what they think. They think you've got to keep all of the rules just exactly right. But watch what Paul says, verse 12. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things 
or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. You see, Paul realized he wasn't perfect. He said he's not perfect. He, however, pursued the perfection that Christ had put in him. You, too, are challenged, just like Paul, to grow in Christ. And you're going to find this joy that comes from deep within because, you know what, God is a lot more interested in your direction than He is your perfection. He is a lot more interested in your direction than He is your perfection. Now notice I'm talking about God. If you talk about the religious leaders or the people who want to put religious rules on you or the people who want to burden you with different kinds of expectations spiritually, if you talk about those people, they're often worried all about your perfection and they don't really care or even ask about your direction. But God is not that way. No one, no one ever attains perfection. But because of Christ and what He did, When God sees you, He sees the perfection of Christ in you. You see, when you know Christ and when you're following Him and when you're growing in Him, He makes you look better than you are. He makes you look perfect even when you're full of blemishes and scars and problems of sin from your past. That's the work of Jesus in our life. And that's my prayer for you. And that you, like Paul, will then be committed to growing like Christ and imitating Him. Not because you're trying to earn something. Not because you're trying to prove something. Not because you're trying to satisfy some religious leader somewhere. Not because you're trying to do anything except to show thanks for Jesus Christ for what He has done. That's why His work is so important in your life. Do you know why Paul could do this? Same thing we're talking about. He was focused on his destination. He was not consumed with looking at his current difficulties or his current circumstances. Look at how he says this again. He repeats the same thing in verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Focusing or forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. So Paul was singularly focused, forgetting everything else in the past. Put it where it belongs. Throw it out with the trash and remember that you are pressing on to the heavenly prize that's the one thing that really really matters now you might have won a prize in the past and so this concept of winning a prize might make sense to you I've won several prizes Uh, most of them I don't have any longer because the last time we moved Nancy my dear wife invited her good friend Cheryl to come over to our house and she said, we're going to be moving to Tennessee. And Cheryl, I want you just to throw away stuff so that we don't have to move so many things. And Cheryl went through all of my trophies and prizes and things, and she just trashed them. And Nancy said, yep, Cheryl said, when you get to heaven, Jesus won't care about them. And so she just tossed them in. But one prize escaped Cheryl's wrath, and I brought it to show you here in my pocket. It's my gold medal that I received, an Olympic gold medal. Now, Don't tell Cheryl, okay, because she might come all the way from Georgia and take this and throw it away and say it's worthless. And Paul basically is saying that's probably right. But when I was preparing for the United States Skill Olympics where I won this, 
I was more focused. I was more attentive. I was concentrating better. I was not distracted. And I'm going to guarantee you, if you spiritually will focus on your prize as I was focusing on the potential prize that I was going to win, the same thing will happen to you. The more you're focused on your eternal destination, and the more you're thinking about that and preparing for that, Satan will not have the ability to distract you with the momentary difficulties, problems, or challenges of your life right now. Satan will not be able to pull you away and use temptation as easily to distract you from your pathway. Why? Because you're focused on the heavenly prize, just like the Apostle Paul said. You know, there's so much more in this chapter that uh, I'd love to share with you, and you're going to enjoy if you study it on your own. But I want to show you again in verse 20. We're going to skip a few verses and look at verse 20, how Paul emphasizes this even more he says here but we are citizens of heaven notice he's repeating the same theme where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior he will take our weak and mortal bodies and change them into the glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control Notice how Paul focuses on the citizenship we have in heaven. Notice is how he's implying, if you understand that reality, if you understand that not everything you see right here is everything that life has to offer, if you understand there is a life after, this de- after our death and we need to prepare for it and pack your bag and get ready for it, if you understand that, you've got a lot of power. But you have even more power when, like him in this verse You can say, we are eagerly, I am eagerly awaiting for him to return. I'm eagerly awaiting to go there. My friend Naomi Gilbreth, I mentioned at the beginning, she was a great example of a mother and grandmother, great-grandmother. And as you know, she sat four or five rows in front of me every Sunday. All those hats, I still remember the hats, different one every week. A symbol of the time that she grew up when hats were valued, especially when you went to church to worship. I think about her and the impact she had on my life, but here's one reason she had such a deep impact on my life. She was eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come and to take her home. She was 90 when I knew her. She had some health problems that developed after that, and she got very frustrated. But she wasn't frustrated with the health problems. She was frustrated because... Her body wouldn't release her to go on what she called her big trip. She said, I feel like I've packed my bag and I'm ready to go on the big trip to heaven and my body just won't release me to go. So when she did die, we all celebrated. I mean, it was an incredible celebration at her funeral. It's one that I will remember for a long time. On the front of the program, I have a copy of the program here, was one of her hats that she wore. And on the inside, when you open it, the first page said, Naomi Gilbreth, 92, of Atlanta, Georgia, left for her big trip on May the 23rd. We could celebrate because we knew where her heart was. We could follow her example because we knew she was eagerly awaiting for the destination she had prepared for and packed her bag for. And that's my prayer for you today, too. Here's how you're going to get ready for it. Very simple. You're going to focus on your destination 
not just on your difficulties. To help you with that, I've got a simple project for you. This is really easy. Start off by holding up three fingers, just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There you go. Okay, so we've got a room full of people that all know how to count. That's good. You're going to need it this week. You can put it down. And if you're an introverted person, be patient. This is going to be a lot easier than you might think. This week, I want you to ask three people who did not hear this sermon, what do you think heaven is going to be like? Now, don't make it complicated. Don't overstress about it. Don't worry about it. Just keep it simple, and you're going to enjoy this. Three people, ask them, what do you think heaven is going to be like? Now, you're going to say, but what if they don't believe in heaven? Then just tell them, well, if there were a heaven, if heaven were real, then what do you think it might be like? And see what they say. Again, no stress, no pressure. No, you, you let the Holy Spirit guide you on any follow-up. This is a great way to open a spiritual conversation, but it's a greater way still to help you focus on your destination and not be overly consumed about your current difficulties. And that's what we all need if we want to be able to rejoice and to have a spirit of rejoicing that continues through whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, if you need help or prayer packing your bag and getting ready, if you need help in any way, if you're online with us, there's a button there that says prayer room. If you'll just click that, someone is waiting to pray with you or to give you spiritual guidance. At our East campus here, there is a prayer room as you exit this room and turn immediately to the left, and there are people there waiting. At our West campus, there is a prayer corner with a table in the back and people waiting to do exactly the same thing. And I want to invite you to take advantage of those as you pack your bag and get ready for where we're all going to go as we stand and sing this next song.